Welcome to another fine episode of the Surface for Climate Car Park Convos podcast. Because change really does start with a conversation. Super amped on this episode. Damien Cole has been at the forefront of action on climate for quite some time from the surfing community. And most recently in his role at Surfrider Foundation, he's been really fighting the good fight. But soon he'll also be in the industry itself, launching his new company, Varuna Surfboards, a very interesting startup, which is gonna be a big force for good in the, in the surfing world. Damo is certainly not a one dimensional guy. He's got a really interesting story to tell and I, I enjoyed a lot sitting down with him and getting the chance to learn more about him as, as an individual. Both the organisations we lead will be collaborating on some really important events in the lead up to the federal election and I can't wait to share more info with you all about that soon. In the meantime, enjoy this candid car park conversation with Damo and stay tuned for much more. Thanks for tuning in and again... If you like what you're hearing, then why not share it with a mate? Go on. I will say a very warm welcome to Damien Cole to the Car Park Combos podcast. Where are you tuning in from, Damo, and um, and what's the local beach there? Uh, I'm tuning in from Wadawurrung country uh, down in Torquay. I'm actually down here for a few days uh, just for a bit of work with Surfrider Foundation and uh, my local down here. It's my home. It's my hometown. Um, so my local is Bells Beach. Uh, but I have just moved up to Byron Bay uh, as of a few months ago. I think with with uh, most of Australia has <laughs> moved up to the Northern Rivers. Yeah. Totally, totally. I mean, what a Warren country. And then that means that you're kind of living on Bundjalung country now. Is that the that's where you are? You've moved up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, loving it, loving it up on Bundjalung country. Um, it's a it's a beautiful part of the world, and yeah, I, it's just got a great energy up there. And I think for everything that I'm doing on from a business and environmental perspective, it just made sense to to move up there for a, a kind of a, a new chapter, I guess, of my life, which is uh, really exciting. Epic, epic. I'm coming to you from Yamaji country, which is in the midwest of WA, and. Not a lot of waves in the centre here at Geraldton. It's a little bit annoying. But when was your last surf? Like, where was your last surf? You had a, had a few waves down in Bells? No, I haven't had time here. I flew in yesterday morning and I've been pretty flat out. Um, my last surf was uh, at Broken, actually, over the weekend. Nice. So, um, yeah, just fun little waves. Uh, but it hasn't. I don't know. I think it's been a really weird time for the East Coast. It's, it's been a little bit hit and miss at the moment with waves. But... The great thing is with Byron is you um it's easy to just go for a quick little thirty minute surf and freshen up and you know get your fix for the day. So um yeah, exactly. it's nice. Ah, beautiful. Well, I mean, I think the most pressing thing or the most important thing we can talk about straight off the bat is um Pep Eleven is dead. You know that's um how does that feel for you as someone who was really on the front line of that for a couple of years or more now? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's uh, considering it's also. We've, we've we've nailed a few now, which is is really it's been pretty amazing to um yeah pretty ma- amazing to be a part of and and Lisa like we had the fight for the bite and then we we got you know got really good momentum from that and then we actually we won down in Western Port as well in Victoria stopped AGL which was amazing 
and then to win to win Pep Eleven is just it's uh, yeah it's incredible to and and it's just a show of I think how powerful our communities can be when we when we come together for a common cause and I think that that to me is the most inspiring thing out of all of this is I always like to look at all of these campaigns as you know no one owns them but everyone owns them you know it's it's no one person no one organization surfers for climate were huge on it we we partnered with with uh, with them with surf rider foundation um save our coast were amazing living ocean so all these organizations then you've got a lot of the businesses that jumped on board we had pro surfers individuals up and down that coast and just seeing everyone come together but rallying behind it to me is it's what what really inspires me and keeps me going so yeah really happy with the win and, and great way to finish off 2021 after a What's been a roller coaster kind of year and roller coaster couple of years? It is interesting to to get a result. I think, like given the context as well, like a lot of this work was done. You know, it had to probably rely on a bit more digital. It had to rely. I think you, um, Surfrider, did some virtual town halls during this period to to get awareness out and engage with people on the issue. Um, how did you find um, leading through that change into a less kind of physical presence and having to look at different techniques to make it all happen? Yeah, listen, it was it was it was definitely testing throughout. You know, obviously, I think it's been testing for everyone over the last couple of years and in, in everyone's kind of lives. And certainly for us, uh, where we're used to having kind of events in person on the beach those kind of face-to-face kind of ways to be able to, to get people on board. It, it, it's, you know, always been a really strong point for Surfrider Foundation and to do things, you know, digitally, it was it was a pretty pretty interesting pivot for us. Uh, but I think it's taught us a lot and it's actually probably given us a little more resilience as well and, and taught us how to do things differently and uh, use social media as, as, a, uh, as a really kind of strong tool for us to be able to put everything online, I think very thankful that this has actually happened in a time when technology is there for us. So it's it's the future, you know, like uh, to have the technology we have now, I think it's, it's you know, it's here to stay. So for us as environmentalists, I think it's really important to adapt to that and to adapt to, to these changes. And, and with the environmental world, I think that's that's a really strong point that we have to have to be flexible. We have to be able to be resilient. We have to be able to, to kind of constantly pivot. And um, I think seeing what what we've achieved and even having like our uh, our Instagram filter with the the little oil rig and kind of things like that, it, we we kind of had a bit of fun with it too, which was which is really nice. And then you see a lot of pe- lot more people engage and be able to spread the spread the word as well. So it really is as much as personally. You know, social media. I think there's there's definitely a lot of good and bad um, for it. I think we overuse it as a society, but if you do use it as a tool for for campaigns like this, it can be really powerful, and it and it definitely helps helps a lot in our campaigns. Yeah, I feel like um, I can definitely echo that. And, and yeah, someone told me once, you know, like engineers know how to build bombs, but they also know how to build bridges. So you know, it kind of depends what they put their knowledge towards and the outcomes can be very different things. So, no, it's been an interesting play. And I I did think, like, when I saw that AR filter um, with the oil rig that Surfrider put out there, I just thought that was such a genius little move just to enable, to really leverage that technology because people are always taking photos of their experience on the coastline and to, to have this ugly thing. Like, usually we're trying to make pretty things on social media. We're all trying to look better. But to create something that actually made the 
the view look worse was really interesting to me as a strategy. And I, yeah, I thought it was a really cool um, addition to the campaigning and whatnot. Um, this journey for you, like hanging on the rig there, you know, like I, I, I'd like to go into the history of Damien Cole a little bit and kind of the journey into this space because I think that's, I've only caught glimpses of your experience in some of the meetings that we've had um, about these campaigns as, um, you know, myself at Surface for Climate, you at Surfrider and, you know, your your history was in this oil and gas space and I don't know how many moons ago that was, but can you give us a bit of a story about that that experience there and then the kind of transition into the other side of the coin in trying to stop these things from expanding? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I'll, I'll take you a little further back. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, as you, you've mentioned, I did work in the in the fossil fuel industry for a number of years through my 20s, but taking you back a, a, a lot further, I was actually born and grew up in France. Um, and my dad is a, a surfboard shaper. His name's Morris Cole. And growing up in France, uh, I, I was it was an incredible childhood. And having someone like my dad there as um, I guess as a role model was was incredible because he was also really very connected in with the local local kind of communities and always very much environmentally minded. And so was my mum actually. So having parents like that that were very much kind of in showing us what you know the right and wrong from a social perspective and an environmental perspective definitely set me on a really good path from an early age and my dad was actually uh one of the founders of Surfrider Foundation Europe uh, back in the 90s when France was uh testing testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific so they they, they uh, with him and Tom Curran they actually both started Surfrider Foundation Europe and I do remember actually going to a huge uh, protest actually during the competitions. They used to have the the contest there, right just down the road from our house, and it was always in the middle of summer. And we got all the professional surfers to come over to our house this one morning, and and everyone was getting t- together for this kind of protest rally. And I was still, you know, I remember Rob Machado's huge afro and, and spraying it with green, green, white, and red hair. And we had all the t-shirts, uh, you know, the, the big peace signs and all of that. And walking, walking down through the street, we walked past the vice president's holiday house, uh, and then did a full circle and then back into the competition. And I think it spun out a lot of a lot of the French people there, and probably the contest as well. And you know, there was a lot going on, but. I still really clearly remember that day, and I, I would have been only probably six or seven years old, but it was uh, something that really stuck with me because I realised how much we have to stand up for what we believe in and, and stand up for for things that we love and that we want to protect. Um, so that that was instilled in me at a very early age, and and always loved nature and and you know the environment, and always obviously grew up around surfing, and but then as as a lot of people do through their twenties and. I never went to university, so I, I just kind of uh, was floating through life, traveling a lot, going to Indo a lot, and then moved over to Western Australia and kind of just, it, it was a bit of an accidental, kind of like fell into the mining industry, was never really passionate about it, um, but just got a job with a company in Perth, and then from Perth, they kind of said, listen, we've got some jobs up in the mines, do you want to go do a few weeks here and there? And um, I was like, yeah, well, I guess so, like the money's really good. and um, Never really, I guess, thought too heavily on what my impact would be as an individual, as a small one. And also there was the sense of like, I knew I was working obviously for, you know, the 
some pretty evil companies that are, yeah, they're exploiting the planet, but it was kind of like, well, you know, what am I going to be able to do? What kind of change will I make? So it was a little bit, if you can't beat them, then join them. Um, and I think I, I told myself that for many years that ah, I'm just I'm just one number in that big, huge cog and, and industry. So I was working on and off uh, through from the about the age of 22 till about 29 and just would always, it was essentially facilitating my love of, of surfing and traveling. So I got to travel the world and uh, always it, deep down, like funnily enough, actually, I'll, I'll, yeah, I used to actually drive my coworkers a little bit crazy because a small thing was every morning you'd go into the lunchroom and you'd have breakfast and then you'd actually go and pack your own lunch for the day. And it was always in those little takeaway containers. And there was mountains of these, like we're talking hundreds of crew all doing this every single day. You'd, people, some people would like literally put their lettuce in one in one container, their tomatoes in another container, their cucumbers in another one, and they'd have like twenty containers. And I was always personally going, "No, nah, I'll try and fit as much as I can into my, each little container." And then when I'd finish from, from them at work, I'd clean out the containers, and I'd cop so much shit from my my coworkers. Would be like, "What are you doing, Archer?" And I'll be like, well, you know, it's all this wasted plastic. And they're like, look around, mate, come on. Like, what kind of a difference do you think you're making? But it was my own little, you know, my own little way to try and justify what I'm doing. And, um, yeah, so copped a lot and used to kind of te- try and teach the boys about, like, you know, reducing your shower times and kind of like not having to wash everything and then dry everything in the dryer and being able to do it outside because you're limiting your amount of energy and, and it was, I guess it was, yeah, as I say, trying to justify what I was doing in the, in the biggest game. Well, I know from WA experience that um, it's so bloody windy here and it's so freaking hot right now that if you're if you're using machines to dry your clothes, you you may be a moron. Yeah. You may just be a moron. <laughs> like I don't want to label too many people with that, but it is so windy here that things it's, dry in about It's windy, it's hot, it's minutes. dry, it's the desert, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's hectic. So there was all these kind of little things that I was doing and, and realising like I'd always be called a hippie and, a, you know, and I'm like kind of going like, well, look at me, I'm still sitting up here in a mine or, you know, like in, in this uh, gas refinery. I, I was working a lot um, up in Karatha um, and at the uh, Karatha gas plant there, so Woodside gas plant. And I guess for a long time it was just, again, just telling myself that story of just going like, oh, well, like, you know, you're just one guy, what are you going to do? Like, and, so I'd just kind of for years I'd go for three months at a time, four months at a time, then I'd bail overseas and I'd go live for six months and I'd come back. and It was okay, you know, but I knew that the, the worst thing was as well is that knowing that, A, I was making a, I was part of this negative kind of impact on our, on our planet and that also I knew that I'd, I'd be clocking on and knowing that I'd do a four-week shift, uh, a four-week um, swing and it's essentially shutting your life down for four weeks as well. And the mental health of it, you know, effects of that were, were pretty horrid as well. And I just knew that it wasn't a healthy, healthy lifestyle to have. And I ended up actually going from the mining industry and the refining refineries to offshore. Uh, so I was scaffolding on land. And then when I got offshore, I was actually a welder's trade assistant and just got, got on through a couple of mates. Uh, and then was actually was earning the most I'd ever earned in my life. Like it was ridiculous how much money we were getting paid offshore. Um, but it was the most unhappy that I kind of was, you know. I was, it was really this heartbreaking kind of soul-destroying time. And, again, it was three weeks on, three weeks off, and I'd have the three weeks on 
I'd switch my brain off and essentially just go into work mode and then I'd have three weeks off and then I felt like that I was trying to make up for lost time and I was just kind of like in this really weird thing of, yeah, paying for everyone everywhere and traveling everywhere and trying to party, surf, relax, see family, do all this kind of, you know, so I was trying to do too much and it was really playing on me just going, what am I doing with my life? So I ended up uh, at kind of, I was at, must have been 28 years old, 29, and we were on this big job and it was coming to an end and everyone started talking about about which, the you know, the next job and, oh, we're going to go to Queensland, oh, we're going to go to WA or, 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 or the Northern Territory. And I, they were like, Damo, where are you going to, you know, head off to? I've got contacts. And I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I just, I can't, I can't be part of this anymore, like part of this problem. And they were kind of like scoffing, like, oh, where are you going to go? You know, what else you got? And I was like, I'm going to move back to Victoria and take up an environmental science degree in, in uh, environmental sustainability and management. So I've, you know, finished up my job and flew back to Victoria. And can, can I ask how loud the crickets were when you shared that information with your colleagues on the gas Yeah, it, it wasn't. It probably wasn't even crickets. It was a bit of like, oh bullshit, mate. You know, like, oh whatever. What are you gonna do? Like, kind of. But then it also came into like, well, you are a bit of a hippie, so uh, you know. And, and uh, like. Yeah, it's interesting. I just want to ask a question about that because there's something that I guess I want to dive into a bit, like. You're talking about the mental health aspects of these rigs, and I think this is often missed in the environmental movement when we talk about like the impacts of this infrastructure, this this fossil fuel industry. Like, I think a lot of us can forget when we look at the big picture of climate change and our impacts, and you know, CO two emissions, and you know, potential pollution threats and whatnot. We forget that there's humans on the rigs doing work who are actually suffering as well while they do the work. So, do you? From that experience, like how many other people on the rigs do you feel were sharing that similar experience to you? Like, was there ever any acknowledgement of that mental health challenge amongst the crew when they're on there? Um, not too much, no. And, and I must say, probably the offshore industry was probably uh, it was probably better than the mining industry. Just they they've got kind of better unions. It's da- more dangerous work, and they've kind of got a little bit better. They got better facilities or. Uh, better swings as well. So it was the mining industry where, I mean, I, we were sometimes clocking in, you know, six weeks at a time with with one day off in between, and then you'd have five or six days off. They'd fly you back to Perth, uh, or that you'd have seven days off, but they'd count the day that you flew in and out as a day, uh, and then you're trying to do everything you can in the five days, you know, like seeing friends and family and. Yeah, it's not a very healthy lifestyle and the amount of crew up there that you see that might have been in, let's say, their 50s and 60s that have gone through, you know, they've got, they've had three ex-wives, they've lost a couple of houses, their kids won't talk to them. Um, I tell you what, like the brothel in Karatha was full at all times from all accounts. Um, their crew were drinking too much. You know, there's a, it's a very unhealthy lifestyle and, and you can always go back to, oh, you're getting paid really well, which is absolutely true. You know, most crew up there are on $150,000, $200,000 a year, if not more, that's bottom of the barrel. But you've got to wonder at what cost, you know, and that's where I was. I started looking at seeing seeing these older guys. And listen, I'm, I'm still mates with a lot of them and, and I have nothing against the individuals who have to go and provide for their family. I still actually remember one of my friends who I rocked up, it would have been in March, rocked up to a project and I was chatting to him and he said, yeah, I had a baby in December. 
you know, so four months on or whatever. And I said, oh, man, that must have been so amazing to, to hold your baby. And he said, oh, I haven't been home yet. I haven't been able to go see my family because I've been told that I've got this contract and that I need to adhere to this. So it, it's it's a pretty, it, it might look all, all kind of good and fancy and everyone going, oh, you, the money is really good, but you're working the hours for it. You're isolated. You know, there's just you're isolated from your friends and family and, and kind of your everyday life. So it definitely does play on you. Um, but it, And then the worst thing is, is a lot of people kind of stuff it down and don't really talk about it because it's still quite a, um, I guess, a macho kind of, you know, kind of macho kind of uh, industry. And there's a, a very few, it must be, a I don't know, maybe 5% women uh, 95% men, that's just a guess, but it definitely is heavily, heavily male orientated. There's definitely a lot of that testosterone and kind of blokey bloke kind of side of things. So I take a shot of cement and get on with it type, type yeah, vibe. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I've, I've had the, the, the conversations I've had with guys who've worked in these FIFO environments, like they're, they're exhausted, you know, like they're, they're just like they're guys on, on repeat and they know that the money's good and it's almost like this this kind of hamster wheel that I think a lot of them get on that they they don't know how to get off because you know once you start to earn that kind of money and you're kind of getting it home like there's a standard that's set in your life that kind of it's hard to come down from and yeah exactly. yeah it's almost like there's a lot of support that needs to be there for people when they leave that industry exactly and it, and it does it gets to yeah. the point like <laughs> I mean it's embarrassing talking about now like I start. Everyone started talking about Qantas points. Oh, I'm a gold member, and I'm this, and I that, and then I was like, oh man, I'm only a silver member. But you know, with all the flying that you're doing, and oh, maybe I should get to gold. And I'm thinking, and then now I look back, and I'm like, why did I care about my status with Qantas? You know, and it's those little things that you know, or people will come up with the newest UE boom, or they'll come up with the newest headphones, or you know, and it, it becomes this kind of like. Uh, you, you you kind of have this lifestyle that turns into very very kind of uh, shallow and and very kind of materialistic, and you realise that that's again your way of going. Well, hey, I'm working and I'm earning heaps of money, but look at all the toys I've got. Guys that have jet skis, buying huge houses, you know, buying heaps of cars or whatever it might be, and good on them. But then you kind of see that it, it can't be forever, and when you do get kind of addicted to that lifestyle in a certain way it's hard to, to see outside of that box for sure. And the other one is going back to the, you know, because a lot of lot of companies and, and a lot of it, a lot of the industry is on four and one. So that's four weeks on, one week off. So you divide that as a percentage. That is, if for every week is, is 20%, that means you've got an 80% chance of missing birthdays, Christmases, Easter, holiday, all this stuff, your kids' graduation, your kids' first steps, your kids, you know, all these different things. So again, you go back to, yeah, the money's good. Yeah, I'm earning two and a half grand a week, but at what cost? You know, and that that to me was the one that I realized. I was like, I don't like, yeah, I need money to survive, but I was like, I don't want this in my life. I, I think in my head I was like, I've got there's a lot more out there for me. And I don't know what it is. And here's an admission that I've never really made to anyone else. So first time, and I'm doing it on a podcast, I didn't even know what environmental science was when I first, when I left the, the, the mining industry and the FIFO industry, I was like, yeah, I'll do environmental science. And I'm like, oh, what is it? I guess it's figuring out the science of, and I'm like, 
is it kind of like looking at bugs and biology and all? So I had no idea. Like it, it truly was. <laughs> Epic. So it, what an admission for the podcast. What an admission. Look at this. Damo's um, he's opening up here. It's funny just to cut in there because I want to get to the environmental science degree now, but um, it just made me think like I, I'm just feeling all this empathy for the workers in that industry now and it's almost like we need to get a campaign maybe surf rider and surfers for climate you know it's called like hug a fifo worker just go and hug them yeah and just say look but you're earning heaps of cash but you i think you need a hug i think you need to yeah, just like melt absolutely. a little bit into my arms yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it sounds silly but it sounds like pretty true like, well, it, it's a it tough is. old lifestyle and you almost though and it's the same as you know a lot of it's the same as mental listen i've gone through my challenges with mental health and you know being depression to anxiety, suicidal thoughts, you know, I've been seeing a therapist for a number of years now and uh, mm. that's helped a huge amount. So to anyone out there who's feeling unwell, that, you know, isn't quite right, go see a therapist. It's incredible. But what you do have in those times when you're in, when you whatever it is, when you've got your kind of your head down and you're looking at your certain world, you sometimes don't realise how unhappy you are or you don't realise how depressed you are, or you don't realise, you know, how unhappy your relationship or whatever it is. So it definitely takes someone from the outside as well to be able to go like, hey, is this what you really want? Or, hey, you know what, there's there's something else out there for you and we can, and maybe this is what we need to do. It's it's definitely hug them, but also support them in transitioning out of this, this industry and realising that, you know, life does go on if you're not earning two and a half grand a week. And if anything... Your life blooms, you know. Your your, mm. your life actually really takes off, and that's what I find now. That was another lifetime ago. I'm 35 now, so it's been kind of six or seven years. And I look now, and I'm like, oh, I'm I feel so much happier and fulfilled in my life just doing just from yeah. a personal point of view because I know that I'm doing stuff that I really love to do, you know. So it mm. it's definitely a a really it's an interesting kind of paradox that you see with uh with the with the fifo workers for sure yeah beautiful demo thanks for sharing that i think it's um really cool i mean i've I've definitely had my own challenges with mental health as well and and gone through the therapists and the, the silent buddhist retreats and all that kind of jazz and you know like it has its um it's a lot of fun too i reckon once you start to go down the rabbit hole on your own mind and and how it plays tricks on you so no it's great to share that and yeah, there's a lot of, I'm just, I guess, from this conversation, I'm feeling a lot of empathy for the industry. I, I kind of always had it, but it's it's really interesting to hear some of this from someone who was there and on the on the front line. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And um, I guess to get back to the journey of Damien Cole, like I feel um, we were just figuring out that you, you, you've, you didn't know what environmental science was, but you threw yourself into it. So what did you do there? Like how, how did that journey go for you? Because that's a mature-aged entry point for, for education. That has its own challenges and anxieties, I'm sure. So, how was that experience on the way on the way to where you are today? Yeah, oh, it was super stressful. You know, I, I was, I still, I was remember sitting there on the. So I was never on a rig. I was always on a pipe lay barge. Uh, we were always laying mm. laying the pipe, and um, sitting there and just you know, it took a, it took a few months of figuring this out of what I wanted to do and everything, and and it was essentially knowing that oh, I love the environment. I, you know, and, and sitting out there again, it's this like ironic thing that you're sitting on this massive barge in the middle of the ocean and you'll see, you know, you'll go upstairs and it'll be sunrise and you'll see a whale jump out. And you're like, oh, just the beauty of it. And then you're like, here we are destroying it, you know. So I, it, it, 
really, it's kind of thanks to the mining industry that I realized how much we were destroying the planet because I got to see it firsthand. So it was realizing that like, hey, I don't want to be on that side of it. I actually want to be there protecting it, right? So I knew I wanted that. But as I said, I kind of didn't understand properly what environmental science was. I, I, I mean, I, I Googled it multiple times trying to figure out exactly. And now I realize environmental science can mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of offshoots from that. But at the time, it was kind of like I didn't know where to start. And I was like, I'm 29 or 28 years old, you know, in my late 20s. How am I going to? I didn't even know how to apply to universities, you know, like there was all this kind of stuff. Then I remember finally I was like, okay, I read through, I went, you know, I read through Deacon's environmental science in environmental management and sustainability. And I was like, this sounds like me. Cool. Okay. It's a little bit people, people person kind of, you know, it's, it's orientated. So I, I applied for that and I was successful. And I, I did apply to probably another, uh, would have been seven or eight universities, which I never heard back from, but Deacon, Deacon allowed me in. So that was great. But then the stress of the first year of looking at uh, picking picking my subjects for the first semester, and I remember having a wig out because I was looking at it, I'm like, this is my life, this is my new thing, and what if I pick the wrong subject and I don't know what? Oh, and I remember sitting at the dinner table just like freaking out. I'm like, I can't do this. I just don't know if I can do this, you know, and having the, again, the doubts, the self-doubts in certain ways. And then having to stop and just go, oh, just put in a few and just see how you go, you know, and, and, and just realizing now, now that I've learned through and I, I understand the whole process a bit more, I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. If you don't like a subject, you drop it after a couple of weeks and take something up. Or yeah, get out, get out of there before the fees come into play, guys. Exactly. You just got to get rid of it before the fees start to kick in. That's exactly. the trick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Done that a few times. Yeah. So, so <laughs> listen, that was in 2016. I started that. and. Um, yeah, that, that really kind of kick-started me and gave me what I think was the the kind of the – I already had kind of a lot of um, – maybe not not the knowledge, but I, I, I knew the impacts that we were having to a certain point. But I think going to school gave, gave me that knowledge and it gave me – I was able to really kind of see it firsthand and go, okay, quantify it and be able to um, – it, it gave me backup. To be able to go when someone kind of goes like, ah, oh, nah, that's bullshit, you know, like whatever, climate change isn't real, whatever, I'd be like, well, actually, no, I now understand how climate change works, what it is, the heating of the earth. It's like a blanket around the planet and be able to explain it to some. So those things, it gave me a lot of confidence in that sense. And that went through for the first couple of years there. And then I joined a few community groups uh, down in Torquay which was kind of where I got really started because it was seeing it from a grassroots point of view and being involved with all these incredible people who have been fighting for their communities and, and to protect their communities for decades, really. They, you know, I worked with ecologists and town planners and, and engineers and all this kind of stuff. So it was that, that to me, joining community groups and joining like-minded people, was that was also a huge part of, of my education, I think. And that's kind of what led me to, to where I am today. So I'm hugely thankful to all of those community groups, um, the Greater Torquay Alliance, Surf Coast Energy Group. Um, yeah, the, it was just great to be a part of that because it, it kind of inspired me a lot to to realise like, hey, I'm, I'm not the only one like this. A lot of people out there are really wanting to, to stand up for their community and their oceans and planet. So that was, that was incredible too. I'm finding... Um because you know it's a i i was working in environmental matters overseas and you know 
only getting back into Australia just before COVID kicked off and um, joining Surface for Climate, you know, midway through this year um, in my capacity. Um, learning, I'm just learning that Torquay is this really hot environmental space. It's just this, it seems like it's a geographical area that has so much going on that you don't really, from the outside, you don't really associate environmentalism with Torquay, you know, it's usually like fire and hippies and, you know, you kind of think everyone's doing good things up there and, you know, but it, but I'm learning that Torquay's pretty active and it's, um. but what do you put that down to? Is it is it that the natural environment's just so inspiring that everyone just wants to protect it or do you feel like it's just there's something else going on down there because it, it really seems to be a hotbed for, for action? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question actually. Uh, I don't know exactly. It's probably no no single factor. I think it's probably a, a, a multitude of kind of reasons. Definitely the coastline that we have down here. I mean, it's one of the most incredible coastlines in the world. I think going driving along the Great Ocean Road, you've got Bell's Beach, that kind of like ochre, the coloured cliffs, and it's beautiful and it's raw and it's, you know, you really do feel connected to, to this, you know, big, beautiful planet. I think also probably it's proximity to Melbourne, to be honest, because what you have is you have those people that are environmentally minded that want to get out of the city and it's that that real natural kind of move for, for a lot of people. So we probably have, we, we tend to kind of um, draw a lot of those people in, I think. So there's probably that. I think that it's also come from the surfing world as well. We still do, we do have a lot of surfing, surfing kind of people out there that do really care about our, our, uh, our oceans and our coastline as well. So it's kind of a mixture probably of all, all of those things. And also the community groups that have been there for a long time have been able to have some wins. Like if you look at Bells Beach in itself, like the, the whole Bells Winky Pop area, all that regeneration, if you ever look at the photos from like the 70s, it did not look like that. It was a muddy paddock that was just completely like decimated and it wasn't the, the, the local council or state state government or anything that came in and fixed it. That was community groups. That was actually sane, surfers appreciating the natural environment who went down there and planted all these trees and things like that. So when you have those groups in the, in the community doing great work, it tends to also inspire other people to come in. So it feeds off that. I think that's probably where, where we've been able to build off that. And also there's a lot going on here um, in terms of growth and everything. So there's also a lot of need to, to be able to, to, to protect this area as well. No, beautiful. It's nice to hear that those that connection to grassroots kind of not it's not so much activism, is it? It's just action. It's just taking an action. It's kind of better than talking about it. And yeah, I I you know, being a being a lay down guy on the old boogie board, I've I've never been to Bells, you know, but now that I ride a surfboard, you know, probably half the time I really want to go there now because I'm like, shit, that looks like a good time for a natural footer. So no, I'll um, I'll definitely have to look into it, I've, but I've never seen it with my own eyes. So yeah, it's, like, oh, mate, it's, it's, uh, it's something I've got to do. Bells is, I mean, obviously, I'm a bit biased, but it's hands down my favourite wave. In the world. <laughs> you know, I just love oh, it when you, when you get that wave from way out back, Rincon on a on a six foot day, and you just fly it as fast as you'll ever go on a wave. You know, like oh, it, I can't it, wait. it's beautiful, and then you've got the natural amphitheater. And I think again, that's where when you look around, like. During the fight for the bite and stuff, I used to, to go clear my head and, and kind of reconnect. I used to sit out at Bells and like, I, and then, you know, I, I kind of actually get a little bit emotional now thinking about it and, and looking around and, and 
kind of looking at the cliff tops and stuff and, and looking at just how incredible, how incredibly lucky we are to call this place home and to threaten mm. that with the potential of an oil spill that would just destroy it. It'd be gone pretty much forever. It'd never be the same, you know. And that, that to me was yeah. also really inspiring to look around at the history of the place, you know, both post-invasion but also the, the, from the, the traditional custodians here, the Wadawurrung people. Mm. You look at how important these areas are and how important they are ecologically. It's like how could you not stand up and want to want to protect these places, you know? And I think that that's where no matter where you go, you know, to, uh, obviously as I say I'm biased to Torquay, but no matter where you go in Australia and around the world, it's local communities. Just yeah, as you say, they're not activists as such. Like it's it's an interesting term because it's it's just people protecting what they love and people protecting their their, their communities. Yeah. Like, shouldn't we all be doing that at all points? You know, like isn't that mm. what you do see? That's the hundred thousand years of culture uh, around Australia. That's that's all they did. They just looked after their their mm. their own homes, really. So. It should be something that all of us should be doing without question. Are you, um, with the experience you've had, we haven't even touched on your um, journey into independent politics, which was, um, which is probably a story in itself, but I feel like we can kind of say that you journeyed into it, but you experienced it and you, you kind of went there. Do you feel like we're talking about grassroots kind of action and activism and then you've, kind of gone on this journey into surf rider you've had a dabble at politics as well do you feel like there's been a couple of wins on the board you know now fight for the bite you know pep 11 um western port do you feel like politics is the answer or do you feel like where do you see the grassroots versus the the men in the suits up here you know like how where does change happen in this space uh, your opinion now yeah i again it's it's no one thing and, and i don't i think Anyone who says, oh, you've got to leave it up to big business uh, or you've got to leave it up to the politicians, that's just lazy. Like, no. You could, how do you think politicians and big business change things? Is through the individual pressuring those companies or the, or the government and it's vice versa. But then the government needs to also lead the people as well. So to me, it, it's every single person needs to. We, do, we definitely need grassroots activists. We do need grassroots communities. But then we also need our companies to stand up and actually start pulling their weight, stop exploiting the planet, and not just fossil fuel companies, but fast fashion, transport industries, energy companies, everything. You know, every single company in the world needs to be looking at their operation and going, how can we reduce our impact? And government as well. Government needs to be leading the way, and we're caretakers for this for, for this country. You know, like we need to be. We, we don't own it. We're caretaking for the future generations, and that's what a government should be doing. They should be putting things and measures in place to be able to have a more prosperous future for, for the next generations, not trying to squeeze out every last dollar and every bit of oil and gas around the country to feed their fossil fuel mates at the expense of our communities, and that's where we've gone wrong. So that's where I you know, personally believe in you know, the independent candidates and, and independent MPs around the country are so integral to breaking this this whole kind of political system down because we need a huge upgrade at the moment. Not to say that every politician's evil or that the political system, we live in a beautiful country and damn, we're lucky to be living here, you know, 
but we we have this outdated system which isn't working anymore and we need to we need to give it a, a big update and that's where i think having independence coming in and actually potentially holding that balance of power is going to prove to be for me i i think it's going to prove to be really really uh, beneficial for for our country because it will then allow our communities to be able to be represented truly and that's the problem with having this liberal and labor the two major parties They'll go out there and tell you that they're representing you, you the, the the voter or you the community member first and foremost. But we know that's bullshit because first they have to go to their party, make sure that it's in line with their party lines, and then they go to their their donors or whatever it might be, and then they go to the community. So it's kind of like we're seeing this real disregard for our community. So I think that really it needs to be everyone. It needs to be top down. It needs to be bottom up. It needs to be left to right, right to left, inside and out. It needs to be all the way around, every single person there making that making that positive change in whatever way they can, from key cups to ending of fossil fuel exploration around the whole country. It's got to be everything that we do. Yeah, it can seem overwhelming too at times. And I think it was really interesting because I want to find a segue into another aspect of your, your world. And I, I think it would be super interesting to see how these um, – next couple of elections play out with that independent movement and also to see how the major parties can actually shift in response to that threat because they it looks like it is a threat and they need to they're probably strategizing how to kind of um you know neutralize that threat to their their power which is a positive thing because you'd hope that they can see see problems for themselves and change in the best direction possible um but speaking of kind of systems and change You've also kind of launched Varuna or you're part of this new, you know, surfboard manufacturing space, which is a really interesting um, thing for you with the family name, you know, your father shaping traditional boards for, for many, many years and I've heard they're wonderful boards. Um, and now you're, you've launched Varuna, which is this kind of almost an innovation back to the past because it's kind of relying on some of the old timber that was there in the beginning. So Tell us a bit about that transition. I guess like for me, it, it's a really exciting space because one of the challenges I see in the work that we do with working with the surfing community around Australia and, and engaging with people around the world who ride waves, um, there seems to be this kind of um, paralysis that can happen for surfers because they realise like they can't shake that they're wearing wetsuits that have you know fossil fuels in them and they're riding craft that are full of fossil fuels and yet we're asking them to engage in these environmental issues against fossil fuels. Um, I love that there's innovation happening to break down that paralysis because I feel like that's a real, it just holds surfers in this weird limbo that they can't seem to figure out how to move forward we, from. We got called, a lot of us did, got called hypocrites during the fight for the bite, you know. It was like, well, you're paddling out on all yeah. the boards. And, and listen, they're not wrong. Um, I think that it's, mm. it's, to be honest, it was kind of, not ex- it, it was kind of it was much bigger than that you know it's it, it's kind of saying well because you're part of the problem that this societal problem we have you're not allowed to stand up and demand better you know so it definitely uh, it was always irking me until I was like you're missing the point but also ah oh, you're not wrong you know so uh yeah so we 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 started up Varuna um it was it, it started before the fight for the bite um through my business partner and then during or just before the fight for the bite, actually, I got put in touch with him, and he he just started this like hollow wooden surfboard company, and um, 
he was just this great guy who essentially put a backpack on, went to Indonesia and started looking for woodworking crew and a woodworking kind of factory to, to make these boards, um, but kind of was missing that performance side of things and that kind of surf industry side. And I jumped in at a very early stage with him and, and we kind of started chatting and realised we had very similar values and that, yes, of course, money is important, but it's not everything and it shouldn't be the number one thing for any company. Uh, it's more so how we do, every, and not just the materials, but how we, how we really kind of set up every single process within, within, our, within our company. And that for us was a really important thing. So we've ended up with these high-performance surfboards that are hollow, so no, no foam whatsoever. We use a bio-epoxy resin. Um, and the balsa that we use, so that's the fastest growing hardwood in the world. We use balsa that comes out of Indonesia, uh, and it's actually an invasive species in Indonesia. So we go in there and actually selectively uh, extract the, the balsa. So we're essentially kind of doing weeding in these forests, which is really good. And then on the other hand, also we're growing our own balsa, yes, in Indonesia, but we make sure that we cut them down before they before they flower, so we're not part of the problem. But the most exciting thing with that is we didn't want to go down that monoculture kind of farming where it was just balsa. We uh, we really wanted to make make a real point of difference and wanted to help our planet in some way doing this. So what we ended up doing was finding all of these deforested areas in the northeast of Indonesia, in kind of around the Maluku Islands. So we've gone found all these deforested areas and we work with the local communities to selectively, um, selectively plant these, these saplings far enough apart so when they grow, what happens is they provide shelter and, and, and uh, shade and it kills all the, the grassland that's overgrown there and then the local communities come in and they actually plant all the native species in there and they, they, then they get to grow for about four and a half to five years. We go in, we take out the balsa We've replanted another native species where the balsa was, and then we've reforested that area, and we move on to the next area. So that that to us is a different way of making sure that we can get the materials for our for our product, and we're helping out the planet by regrowing these these forests. So that was one kind of kind of one way that we really wanted to make sure that we kind of we're giving back really and we're going to end up being a carbon negative company which is really exciting and then as you mentioned uh having a, a, a dad as a shaper which not gonna lie has definitely been very beneficial throughout my life <laughs> having some uh having some good boards but what it also allowed me to do was really push and and you know my dad definitely helped us in terms of uh in terms of the internal designs but really push for that performance because that's another thing in sustainability and having you know going down that kind of more sustainable route is you need to make sure that your product is a really high quality not just good for the planet but needs to last and it needs to perform to the you know just as good if not better than whatever its counterpart is that that is draining the world from oil or whatever it might be so having him on board what we've actually done is we now get to we've got a design and a technology where we can go to any shaper in the world Get their files and recreate their recreate their designs in a much more sustainable way. So you get to have your favourite surfboard from your shaper, whether it's you know we've got on board, we've got Joel Fitzgerald on board, we've got obviously my dad Morris Cole, we've got Stuart Darcy on board, and we've got a, another guy from France um, who's got UWL. Uh, that's the name of his brand. So and we're looking to expand really quickly, and and 
it, that's where it's great as well because we're working with the with the surfing community and the shaping community to go hey and most of these shapers know they know that their that their industry is toxic and they 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 don't quite know how to get out of it because they're like well we want to surf and I want everyone to go out there and surf you know like it's an incredible lifestyle an incredible life to have but knowing our impact on the, on on the oceans and our impact on the planet We've got to get innovative in how we do things. So what we're, we're able to do is go to go to shapers and provide an alternative and a solution for being for them being able to still design their the, the do what they do best and design these incredible boards, but doing it in a much more sustainable way. So that's been really exciting for us, and we've just launched over the last few weeks, and really really excited to um yeah really excited to see where this goes. It's got a really bright future and the, the excitement that we're seeing around uh, from different shops and different shapers and people that are surfing them has been really humbling and, and really exciting to see where, where we're going to move forward from here. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful step um, that surfing needs to see, um, you know, these better designs in that space. Like there are a few other players in the market already producing boards, but I have noticed that you've really focused on getting those shapers on board from the start, which is kind of giving them that bridge to kind of step onto to move away from the toxic materials they're using. So I think it's a beautiful um, a beautiful plan. And um, I, I, from what I see of the boards online now, they look like they surf quite well. I mean, there's not, there don't seem to be any problems with performance. So, yeah, super exciting demo and um, well done for that. And that I didn't know about that background with the regenerating of the forestry in Indonesia as well. So that's a really beautiful aspect and yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening will be able to appreciate. Yeah, well, and it's, again, it goes back to these companies and, and listen, everyone's trying to do their best, you know, whether it's making board shorts from recycled plastics or, or you know, reducing their water consumption for making jeans or whatever it might be. I think that it's great steps that people are starting to take. But for us, what we really wanted to see, you know, for our company, we wanted and we're on a, we're on a mission to redefine the world of sustainable surfing. You know, and we want to be leaders in that that field to look at. It's not just the materials you use; it's the entire life cycle and process that you you put through your, your product, and also the longevity of your product. And so far, our boards have lasted. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that they're unbreakable, but they're damn strong, and they we're yet to snap one, and they last a hell of a long. Like so far, they're lasting a really long time. So it was really making sure that we hit all of those aspects. To, to ensure that we're out there giving the best possible product we can. And it's something that, you know, and looking through my my whole kind of last few years, whether it's through politics, whether it's Surfrider Foundation, whether it's Fight for the Bite, it's my own personal integrity that I say, like, I would never, ever go out there and sell anything that I don't believe in, you know. And, and that's that's been the beautiful thing is we've got, um, got this incredible team around us and we all believe in this product and we all know that, and, and in a sense, this it's a little bit of a silver lining called COVID nineteen, which put the huge brakes on us for for kind of eighteen months, and it was a bit frustrating at, at first, but it allowed us to stop and go. Well, let's let's make sure that every aspect of our company is a planet first mindset, you know. And, and from now, you know, our tagline from seed to surfboard, we get to control everything from seed to surfboard and make sure that we're completely transparent that we're, we're completely upfront with everyone and that we have the highest quality of everything that we can, you know, everything that we can. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting time for us. 
No, that's beautiful, Damo. And I think um, it's I'm you know just anxious to see how you go, and I'm definitely going to harass you into um, getting a bodyboard made with this technology as well, so I can um, do my bit laying down. Um, it'll probably result in maybe a couple of broken ribs at times <laughs> potentially, but we'll, I'm sure we can figure it out through no, the um, R and D process. On, get some cork on there or something, mate. That'd be good. Jo- I'm definitely going to be talking to you about this because it's um it's it's dear to my heart. And look, bodyboards are just as bad as surfboards. I mean, yeah. it's all polypropylene. It's all it's all chemical petrochemicals. So you know yeah. something's got to give. And um yeah, like I'm definitely keen to explore that space. And I have noticed that cork has been used in a few other designs and stuff. So it's really positive and um yeah, super cool to see. Um, in wrapping up the podcast, I think it'd be really cool to touch on you know what gives you hope. You know, we're talking, um, you know, behind the scenes about how we collaborate better on some of these other challenges that are, you know, looming on the horizon, particularly in the Otway Basin, um, but also kind of looking bigger. And, you know, it's great to see um, Peter Wish Wilson introduce the the bill to Parliament to um, to try and see an end to all exploration in Australian waters, which is beautiful. It's what we all want. So um, really exciting step there. Um, but, you know, what what gives you hope from where you're sitting today? coming into 2022, and I'll let you have the last word. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of things that do give me hope. And as I say, I'm, you know, I'm sure you you could probably relate to this, but obviously being in the environmental world, I get a lot of people asking me, how do you do it, really? Because there's it's not always positives. Like, it's a hard slog, mm. you know, and, and you do, you, mm. you see things happen, and, and, and I won't focus too much on the negatives, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a reality of the world that we live in. We, we you know, like, we won PEP 11 and within an hour, I think I was on the phone to Belinda and going, okay, we're focusing now onto the Otways and off we go and then we start planning for next yeah. year, you know. So it, we don't, we, we definitely don't get a huge amount of time to celebrate, although it's important to celebrate those times. But I think what gives me a, a lot of hope is seeing, seeing our, our society now and our communities really start to stand up and realise a, how important it is for us to protect our coastlines and our planet, and and also B, seeing seeing people actually inspired to do that in themselves. And I think that that's where we get inspiration. When you see people, you see 3,000 people turn up to a paddle out, you know, where you see a, a huge amount of, of people that start writing letters or, you know, saying that they never got interested in a certain, that they never got interested in politics and now they are and they're writing letters to their local MPs. That kind of stuff where you're like, wow, like that's that's pretty amazing to see. And and then also without, well, you know, trying not to sound too cliche, but seeing this up and coming generation um, is just simply incredible to see. Like I, I want to give a, a special shout out to Salty Souls Kids that's uh, run by a nine-year-old called Audrey down in Tasmania. She's just launched as of la- uh, on Sunday last week. And she approached us a few months ago and said that she started her own clothing brand and she wants to donate a certain amount of profits to five different charities that help kids and the environment. So Surfrider Foundation is one of those. And to see that at nine years old, to be so aware of our impact on on the planet, but also seeing what the solutions can be, to see Audrey start up Salty Souls Kids is just like incredible. And it's those emails that you get where you just stop and you're like, wow, we are making a difference, all of us, you know, our generation here. And I, I definitely don't want to 
be that person who's saying it's up to the next generation. No, it's actually up to our generation and the generation before us to be educating and training and guiding the future generation that is coming up. And I think that is happening and you see what's going on, whether it's the the, the huge uh, climate strikes going on led by Greta Thunberg, you know, you see all of this stuff happening. The awareness that you see from all these young people is astounding and that definitely does inspire me and, and you know, kind of look out to every politician and, uh, out there because these people will be voting very, very soon and I think that we're gonna we're gonna see a, a very rapid transition to a much cleaner, cleaner kind of society and, and really taking it more account for, for our actions. And and I think that's that that to me is the really inspiring thing as well, is is seeing, yeah, as I say, the the entire all of our communities and society, but specifically this young generation. So um yeah, that that to me has been really inspiring and it, it makes me want to do better and, and wants to, you know, makes me keep going and, and, you know, gets me up earlier in the morning. And I definitely, I enjoy coming to work every day because we get to make a difference, you know. And, and when you have those those messages from people saying, you know, I love your work. This is incredible. My, my six-year-old son came to the paddle out and realised the importance of why, you know, you can't destroy the whale's homes or something. And you hear all this stuff and it, it definitely really keeps uh, keeps the energy up there, and and definitely inspires me. So so that's probably where where I really pull pull my inspiration. From.